0: Me begin with a word of prayer. We're going to we're going to pick up in Isaiah 52 today and go through really one of the most famous sections of Isaiah uh 52:13 through 53:12. So this is kind of the last servant song, the one that we've been building up to uh, for several weeks. So let me let me pray and then we'll we'll dive in. Our Father, thank you for the day that you've given to us. We know that this is a day that you have made and we pray that you would Cause us to rejoice and be glad in it. We pray that you would give us hearts that are open to your word. Give us a, a mind that's receptive to the things that you teach us in your word. We we ask that your Holy Spirit would work through your word today, that you might convict us of sin and ultimately point us to Jesus Christ. And so, thank you for the opportunity you've given us. Give us humility and wisdom as we discuss these things, and we thank you for your word, and for for instructing us in and through it. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so last of the servant songs, I want to kind of lead up to this by way of a little bit of review. So remember, um, we've talked about this for a while, but there's this servant theme that actually goes all the way back to Isaiah chapter 7 and Isaiah 9. So, so the idea of the servant is kind of hinted at there. Those are messianic passages, of course. Isaiah 7 uh, prophesies ultimately the virgin birth. In Isaiah 9, uh, unto us a, a, a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government will rest on his shoulders. It's a uh, passage that we recite a lot around Christmas time, rightly so. But it's, it's, a, it's a striking text. Uh, So then then we get into this this section of Isaiah 40 through 55. And and the issue there is that the Lord has just declared, hey, the Lord has just declared in Isaiah 39 what's going to happen. We've kind of gotten to the end of the Hezekiah material. And what becomes clear at the end of the Hezekiah uh, account is that While the Lord is going to preserve Hezekiah and preserve Jerusalem from the Assyrian army, um, and he did preserve them from the Assyrian army, nevertheless the Babylonian army is going to take Jerusalem into exile. So this is Isaiah's message. And then right on the heels of that, in Isaiah 39, you know, basically you've got maybe 15 years, but Babylon is going to come in and take you out, and that's guaranteed. There's nothing you can do to avoid it at this point because of your sin. Then we have Isaiah 40. And Isaiah 40, remember, begins with comfort, comfort my people. Um, And so it's God's comfort to them in the midst of this declaration that the Babylonians are coming. So how do we receive comfort from that? And then Isaiah 40 is this long account of the greatness of God and how powerful God is. And he's the creator of the heaven and the earth. And that's a comfort for the people. And then at the end, the, the real comfort in addition to that is that God's Word is going to endure. And so the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God endures forever. That's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 40. That's the comfort. Now the question is, okay, well, how is that going to play out? So so the way I've talked about this over the last few weeks we've been together is, you know, at a a 40,000-foot level, the comfort is the greatness of God and the Word of God. At a, a, you know, 30,000-foot level, the comfort is... That God's going to come in and judge, but he's also going to preserve a remnant. And Isaiah 41 and 42 make that clear. And then at like a 10,000 foot level, how's he going to do that? Um, The answer is, he's going to do that through his servant. And so Isaiah 40 to 55 gives all this comfort, but it gives it at kind of a macro level and then at a much more narrow level. And then there's another kind of, maybe even a, I don't know what, how many thousand feet we're at at this point. But um, but you know at a historical level, in the near term, what also God reveals is, I'm going to preserve you through Cyrus, this, this Persian king who's yet to come. And the reason why Cyrus is significant and a number of chapters are devoted to Cyrus in this section is because Cyrus is going to be the one, generations down the road, who's going to be the one who decrees that a remnant of Israel can go back from their exile and return to the land and rebuild the city. And we see that happen in Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, it's a little more complicated than that in Ezra and Nehemiah, but we're going to stick to Isaiah for now and just say Cyrus is the one who's going to decree for them to go back, and he does. But but the real, the key figure, Cyrus is important and Cyrus has a role to play. And Cyrus, you know, even, even, even in Israelite history, um, as it's told today, Cyrus is an important figure because he's this kind of Gentile king who ends up saving them and allowing them to go back. But but the really significant figure, the main character 40 to 55, the real savior, in a sense, is this servant who's to come. So there are these four servant songs. And in the first servant song, in Isaiah 42, the focus is on judgment. He's the one who comes as judge. Now, he's a, he's a really uh, peculiar judge in that he is perfectly just, but the bruised wick he will not snuff out. Uh, you know, so so he's, he's perfectly just, but, but those who are humble in heart he's going to preserve. And then in Isaiah 49, we get this um, servant of the Lord who is um, uh, kind of beaten down. And actually the words out of his mouth in Isaiah 49 are so striking because he's the hero of the story. And yet he says at one point, I've labored in vain. You know, I'm about to die but then the Lord restores him. So he's this kind of suffering servant, but we don't know why he's suffering in Isaiah 49. It, but what it says at the end is that uh, he's, he's a light to the nations and he's the one who's going to bring salvation to the whole earth. Then we have a third of the servant songs. We looked at this not last week, but last time we were together, which was, um, I don't remember how many weeks ago. And that one is uh, that presents the servant in two ways. It presents the servant, number one, as a teacher. His word is what does the work. This is Isaiah 50, um, 4 through 6. And then, and then he's also one who voluntarily suffers. So he's, a, he's a, a servant who is notable for two things. He's notable for his word and for suffering. And we talked about how that connects with the with Moses and the prophet like Moses, etc., so now we're at the, the final servant song. One more thing about the song, the servant songs that I'll just remind you of, and this is all a review, I know, is that the servant songs all have a common format, and the common format is description and then commentary. Uh, a description of what the servant is, who who the, who the servant is, what he'll do, and then kind of a comment on the significance of that. Um, 52 through 53, this final servant song follows a slightly different format, but it's not really a surprise because this is the big servant song. This is the important one. The, 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 um, the layout here, the, the um, outline is, so, so we're going 53, or sorry, 52, 13 through 53, 12, and instead of having all the description packed in at the beginning, and then the commentary kind of tacked on at the end, as we've seen in the first three, what we have here is actually, um, it's kind of like a uh, uh, you know, an X or something or a target. And the commentary comes right here in the middle. And so the comments so there's description on either side. And the commentary is right in the center. And that's in fifty three four to six, and this is really the big reveal of the whole servant section in Isaiah forty to fifty five, because there are these questions. If we had been keeping track, and and you know we didn't we didn't do this, but if we if we went back, we could we could probably spend a whole hour just. Reading through the servant songs and, and kind of asking questions, interrogating them. What does this mean? Why? Why did this happen? A, a classic example of this is the, is the third servant song in Isaiah 50. And, and I just alluded to this briefly. In that third servant song, the servant is presented as a, as a speaker, as, a, as a, having a word ministry, but also as a sufferer. Or, or you could interrogate Isaiah 49 and say, why is it that in Isaiah 49, at a key moment... The servant says, "My life is spent it's all in vain you know so you could kind of ask these questions and 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 the individual servant songs don't answer the questions but fifty three does answer the question because why the big question I guess we could we could break it down if we look through each section but the big question is why is the servant who is the focal point, the main character, the savior in Isaiah forty to fifty-five, the capital, the answer to to the restoration of Israel. Um, why is is he suffering? Why why is there such pronounced suffering in his life? Because again, Cyrus is just a king, and Cyrus has a role, but he's just a king, and he's he doesn't suffer. He just he just dispenses. Gifts to Israel in response to God's um, God's leading, and and but but the the really important servant, the servant that matters again, that sort of capital S servant, suffers, and 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 it's so strange. Um, so that's that's the big question: Why does the servant? Who is God's anointed one, God's Messiah? The government will rest on his shoulders. You know, why does that guy? How how does it work that that guy also suffers? And you know, this is this is a question that actually is almost haunts intertestamental Judaism. So the Judaism between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's like a shadow that over uh, overlooks intertestamental Judaism. So, for I'll give you I'll give you some examples of what I mean. So, for instance, in the community that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's like two hundred to one hundred BC Jewish community. They they wrote these commentaries on the the, the messianic passages of the Bible. And one of the things that they speculated, they posited, was they they sort of said, you know, when we read through the Bible, it almost seems like there has to be two messiahs. Uh, Because a lot of the messianic texts have to do with glory and victory. But then one or two have to do with suffering. And we don't know how to put that together. And, and, And then you find other Jewish sects that kind of have the same question. And they say, well... Maybe there's three messiahs. There's like a prophet, a priest, and a king messiah. And and it's not just it's not just the Jewish people in the intertestamental period. If you if you turn to um, if you turn to uh, 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 First Peter, um, Peter says this, and this is this is really interesting. Um, 1 Peter 1 10. Now this is not this is not intertestamental Jewish people, this is the prophets themselves. Look at what look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, it's starting in verse 10, but let me actually go back to verse 8 just to give you the context. So 1 Peter 1 8. <clears throat> Though you have not seen him, you love him, talking about Jesus. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy and that is inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So you, you haven't met Jesus or seen him face to face, but you rejoice in him and he's going to save you. But concerning this salvation, this is where it's really interesting. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now let me, let me kind of summarize what Peter's saying here. Peter's saying that even the prophets, so let's take Isaiah because we're, we're dealing with Isaiah. Even Isaiah you know he prophesied the glories of the Messiah and he prophesied the sufferings of the Messiah and Isaiah knew that both were true and he believed them, and he preached them with all his heart and died believing them. but Isaiah made careful searches and inquiries to figure out how it all fits together, because just like the the Jewish people between the testaments, even Isaiah was You know, it's confusing to him. The servant is the great victor. The servant is the one who's God's Messiah. The servant is the one who's going to bring us salvation. So how do those glories connect to the sufferings that I'm also prophesying? And it's this big question. It's this very, it's Isaiah. and, And you know the answer Isaiah is given, according to Peter. The answer Isaiah is given is, well, Isaiah, that's not for you to know you're you're not serving yourself when you prophesy you're serving people yet to come, and for us, Peter says, it's somewhat easier because we see, oh, the sufferings are in the first advent, and the glories are in the second advent and and that you know that that all makes sense but but Isaiah didn't see that for Isaiah it was like, and I may have used this illustration before earlier on but it, it's it's the best one I know of. For Isaiah, it's kind of like, and the other prophets, it's kind of like when you're if you're driving yeah. on a long highway to the Rocky Mountains, um, you you see all these like you're you're 50 miles away and you see all these mountain ranges, kind of like it looks like they're almost connected. It looks like you could walk like from here all the way across, but then you get up close, you know, your car gets up close, and you realize, oh, those are each like. Fifty miles away from each other, they're not actually connected, but it looks like they're connected. And and that's Isaiah prophesying about you know suffering, and glory. Um, to Isaiah's like, how does that fit together? How did, how can those two? I know they're both true, but how are they both true? And and the Lord says uh, for you to know, Isaiah, you're 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 staying hundred miles, um, whatever west of those. And, and, uh, but now we can see, oh, oh, okay, it it looks that way, but it's not that way. They're actually separated. So, 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 the, the, the real, the real point I'm trying to make here is that, um, is that this question is a, is a big question. And you know how this plays out in the Gospels. Because in the Gospels, the apostles themselves, and certainly all those around them, once they came to the conclusion that Jesus was actually the Christ, that he's actually the Messiah, what was their immediate thought? Their immediate thought was, okay, we're there, we get it, you're the Messiah, which means that we're going to make our way to Jerusalem and you know, overthrow the Roman government, or however they conceived of that. But but remember what uh, and, and you see it played out in the Gospels because remember what um, what always happens like when Jesus at Caesarea Philippi or at or in Judea or in many of the other places he did it says who do you say that I am and and Peter you remember that it says at uh, 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 Caesarea Philippi says uh, you're the Christ the Son of God and Jesus says that's exactly right I'm the Messiah. Um, and flesh and blood hasn't revealed to you, but my Father's revealed it to you. But then the next thing that comes out of their mouth is they start to say things like, okay, given that, how about one of us sits on your right hand and one of us sits on your left when you enter your glory? Or, given that, let's pick up swords. Because that's always the natural implication in their minds. Because for them, you know, if you're the Messiah, you're about to win a great victory, and Jesus always says, "No, no, 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 no. Here's the pro- here's your problem. You haven't read the scriptures carefully enough." And see, it's interesting because Jesus doesn't say, you know, it, it, their problem is they haven't been close enough readers of the Bible. Because if you're actually being a close reader of the Bible, Jesus says, um, you see that the Messiah must suffer. And then enter his glory. And remember that's the issue after the resurrection. In Luke 24. In that great account of these two close disciples of Jesus. Um, they, they, you know, He appears to them on the road. And they don't recognize him. And Jesus says, what are you talking about? And they said, well we're talking about Jesus. Who's a prophet, mighty in word and deed. And we thought, it's so interesting how they say it. We thought he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But he's been dead now three days. And so in their minds, like, that you can't, that we can't make sense of that. We were absolutely convinced he was the Messiah, but he's dead. He died. And Jesus says in Luke 24, he, he, he was, he said, you're slow of heart to believe all that was spoken by the prophet, all that was spoken by the prophets, not just some of it. And then he opened the scriptures to them, it says in Luke 24. And he showed them why the Messiah must suffer and after three days be raised from the dead. And, um, and then at the end, when he reveals himself to them, I love how that goes because he reveals himself. They say, oh, this is Jesus. He disappears. And then what they say is, did not our hearts burn within us when he opened the scriptures to us to show us all these things? And so that's what Jesus keeps doing is he keeps saying to them, not I'm giving you new revelation, but go back and read Isaiah or the prophets or just go read your Bible a little bit more and you'll see this suffering in there. So where is that coming from? Well, it's coming from a number of sources, but the the big place that's coming from is this. And it answers this big servant Section Isaiah forty to fifty five, comfort, comfort my people. Section uh, it answers this big question: How does this all fit together? Um, all right, so that's a lot of introduction, but um, hopefully, of some help. Are you all, are you with me so far? Okay. So, let's talk about the description first. The description begins in forty two thirteen. Behold, and, and all these servant songs begin the same way, behold, look, look at this. My servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Now, I'm going to stop there for a second. But there's a, there's, there are some very important truths there. And they all kind of revolve around this issue of pers- people's perception. Because on the one hand, it starts with, He shall be high and lifted up and exalted. But then... and And... and you know he he uh uh, uh and kings are actually going to see something that they didn't expect to see so there's that like perception thing but then the the overarching theme is that he's not going to appear to most people or to really to anybody as having any real stately form any real um you know gravitas from a visual perspective now it's a bit of an excursus but it's, it's one of the reasons historically um there are several one one of which would relate to the second commandment but then also this um this is one of the reasons why depictions of jesus are you know tr- traditionally you know, in uh um uh they're the problem. They're they're problematic because because if there's one thing we know, because you know how it goes, right? Um, you know whether 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 it's good that we've seen these things or not good that we've seen these things. We've seen these things where you know you'll see the, the sort of depiction of Jesus among his disciples, and, and you immediately know who which one he is, uh, or you see him with like a little family or something. You know that's him. Well, why? Well, because the artist, uh, uh, whether whether a, a genuinely, you know, accomplished artist or a sort of uh, um, uh, just a you know low level one, uh, the artist it, it, it does things that, that that kind of draw attention to Jesus, and so so you can always you always know which one he is, and it looks different in different cultures, etc., but. The point is that whatever cultural setting you're in, they're going to make him look like the important person there. He's got the most tender expression, and he's the tallest, and he's, you know, the whole, the whole thing. So, uh, but the problem, of course, with that, again, second commandment, a problem, we'll talk about that. But, but, the, but the other problem with that is, it's actually directly um, contradictory to what the Bible tells us about it. Um, so, so it's, it's, it's at, it's at worst idolatry, but at best a a kind of misleading thing. Uh, because what does this text tell us about his perception? You wouldn't have picked him out of a crowd, is what it tells us. Um, on the one hand, kings who saw him, and we see this in the gospels, kings who saw him had never... And would never see anything like him again. And, 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 and in the future, he'll be glorified and lifted up, such that everyone who sees him will bow down and worship him. But, but at the time being, notwithstanding all those truths, at the time being, he had no stately form right. You would not, you would not have looked at him and said, that's the one I need to follow. Um that wasn't how it worked. So, and again, we, we can't even we almost can't even like unprogram our minds of and, and and believe that actually. That kind of makes sense of why when when they come to arrest him, like Judas has to Judas has to single him out them. exactly, yeah. exactly. Because not like oh the the right. tall and one just, that everyone's <laughs> looking at. Yeah, it's like no, it is the guys who don't know. Yeah, they don't know. They don't know. And um and so. And that's exactly what Isaiah says. So nothing extraordinary about his appearance, except that if you were a king and you happened to have seen him, that was the most important thing you've ever, ever seen in your life. And one day he'll be glorified. So that's the that's the first part of the sermon song. Now I'm going to skip actually to the second description and then end with the the, the middle part. Um. So we'll skip down to verse 7. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered That he was cut off out of the land of the living. In other words, there weren't going to be these great, you know, oh, we've lost the greatest man of our generation kind of things. Stricken for the transgression of my people. They wouldn't have thought of this. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So he was killed like a criminal, although he's buried in a rich man's tomb. And none of this had anything to do with his behavior. Um and then and then uh we're gonna get a little bit of commentary, but it's it's sort of more just theological framing. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. So this is afterwards. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So what happens in verses 10 through 12? is It kind of gives you the aftermath, which is the Lord had decided and willed to crush him. Now it's interesting. Did you notice this? Yahweh's crushing him in verse 10, but then did you... See in verse 12 how it was described? He poured out his soul unto death. So you go, well, which is it? Did the servant voluntarily die, or did Yahweh crush him? And Isaiah says, both. That's, that's a, the yes is the answer to that question. So afterwards, he's going to be vindicated, but he's going to suffer. So then the question becomes, Why? and this is where we get to our little commentary in verses 4 through 6. And and remember this commentary is a commentary on the fourth servant song, but it's also a commentary really on all the servant songs. Because finally we're getting an explanation if we were tr- if we were tracking, we're getting an explanation to the question that haunted intertestamental Judaism and the question that the Disciples just couldn't wrap their heads around because they were filtering out certain parts of the Bible that they didn't understand or didn't like. And, and you know, just this, this huge question. Why does the servant suffer? And 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Uh, but, but here's the truth. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, you want the answer, you really want to know, why the servant keeps coming up against suffering and his description has to do with suffering. You really want to know why he was esteemed by no one, crushed by God, suffered, um, even though he's vindicated after his suffering. But you want to know why that, that, that happened and why that had to happen? And Isaiah says, the reason why it had to happen is because of you, or because of us. That's why it had to happen. It had to happen because not because of his iniquity, because of our iniquity. Not because of his wounds, or not because of his need for healing, but because of our need for healing. Not because he was guilty before God, but because we were guilty before God. And and that's at the at the core of everything. And so then what you realize is, and this is maybe maybe uh this is just a small detail that we went over several weeks ago, but then, then he realizes, ah, now I understand, because when Isaiah talked about the restoration as being like a second exodus, if you remember, what he said was, there's going to be a physical return, but that's, that's kind of important, but not the most important thing. The really important thing is a, t- a spiritual transformation of our relationship to God. That's the real second exodus. That's when it's really happened and the way that what was necessary for that to happen remember he says i'm going to pour out my spirit on you you're actually going to be mine and the way that's going to happen is by a reconciliation between god and his people and that reconciliation will only be affected by the death of the servant who dies as a substitute um and, and and I'll say to to use a, a theological term that is sometimes contested, a a propitiation, an appeasement of divine wrath. Because it, it it's it's punishment that he takes. It's it's a punitive thing, it's it's penal substitution. It's a it's it's a punishment that was deserved by us, it's a chastisement. It's a crushing, and, 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 and in fact, it says in verse 6, the Lord, Yahweh, lays on him the iniquity of us all. Now, um, the, the thing about this is, um, this doesn't just answer a, well, it answers a servant song question. It answers an Isaiah question. But, but what we're going to see when we go into chapter 54, which I'm not going to try to do today, but when you go into chapter 54, what it says is that this leads to an eternal covenant of peace, a, a kind of covenant of peace that God makes with his people. And, and he's able to have this covenant of peace with his people because of what, of what this servant does in substituting himself and offering himself up. As a propitiation for um, for our sins, and, but but my but, but what I was trying to say was that it's not just a um, an Isaiah question or a servant song question. It's actually it's actually a question that's at the heart of how um, of God's relationship to His creatures. Because what I mean by that is this. Um, maybe maybe we've looked at this before. I can't remember, but. If you if you turn to Exodus thirty four, and and again I apologize if this is your review, but it, but it's good review. In Exodus thirty four, the context is that the people have just sinned in the golden calf. God's uh, giving the law to his people graciously. Moses on the mountain. They come down there, they're impatient, and so they worship these, uh, 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 this golden calf, which Aaron prefaces by saying, This is your God, O Israel, that took you up out of Egypt. And they worship the, the calf. But um, Moses is furious, the Lord is angry, and Moses intercedes for the people, and the Lord is merciful to them, takes a, a sort of substitutionary punishment from them, but not doesn't destroy them. So then then Moses, in the the kind of aftermath of all that, says, I want to see you, Lord. I want to actually see you, your face. And the Lord says, you can't. That's just not even a possibility. Uh, No one can see me and live. But here's what we'll do. Um, Put you behind a rock. Uh, You'll kind of have your back turned. And I will I will have the the fringe, this is a strange Hebrew word, kind of hindquarters, sometimes used of a fringe of a garment, of my glory pass in front of you while you're behind the rock. You know, so this is just a tiny little sliver. But that's that's all I can do. So okay. So then so then the, the this happens. So Moses is behind the rock. And, and Pick up in verse 6. This is the most repeated and alluded to passage in the entire Old Testament. This text right here. So it, it's, it's all over the Old Testament. More allusions and quotations of this text than any other text within the Old Testament. Now when you get to the New Testament, Isaiah 53 is the most alluded to. But, but this is the Old Testament, you know, significant text. Okay, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh, Lord, Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, that's covenant love, that's covenant language, for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's who I am. That makes sense, it's beautiful. But then look at what he says next. But, middle of verse 7, this is where it gets tricky. But, who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, to the and the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. That's so very strange. Because God says, here's who I am. I love forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. I love that. And I have steadfast love and an eternal covenant that abides forever with my people. And it's an eternal covenant of grace that bestows grace upon them. And what good news. But then he says, but also I will never clear the guilty. And anyone who sins against me Anyone who commits iniquity, um, I will will not only judge them, but I will judge their children and I will judge their children's children to the third and fourth generation. I, I, I bet if I went around the room, I don't know, maybe a third of you could name someone four generations back. That's a long time. And the third and fourth generation, if you commit iniquity, I don't, I don't. I don't, by no means will I leave the guilty unpunished, he says. So, but, but there's a tension there, isn't there? Because you say, Moses doesn't say this to his credit. Moses just bows down and worships, which is the right thing for Moses to do. But you could say, uh, well, which is it? Are you? a God who has an eternal covenant of grace and lo- loves giving steadfast love and forgiveness? Or are you a God who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, but punish the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation? And you see, that's kind of... So we talked about intertestamental Judaism and Isaiah and the Messiah, but there's actually an even bigger question than how does the Messiah suffer that this, that this chapter answers, which is why it's such a key chapter, Isaiah 53. Because the bigger, really like meta question, after you get this revelation of God in Exodus 34, is, you know, how can God be reconciled with sinners who commit iniquity? And And you see it happen in the Old Testament. You see David forgiven and... You know, you eat a bunch of people who are forgiven. A bunch of people who are saved by God. So you see it happen, but like, theologically, how? Um, and it almost seems like, you know, some days you get the verse 6 and 7a God, and sometimes you get the 7b God, and you know, which is it? But see, Isaiah 53 answers that question too. Because it takes that exact language of iniquity... Right, which is the problem. I will by no means clear the guilty, and I'll punish iniquity. And it uses those, it takes those two words and lifts them, and says, "Here's what happened. Um, we were we were guilty, but the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all." So you go, okay. So when God forgives people, when the sort of six through seven A God shows up, you know what I mean. Uh, from Exodus 34, when when he has eternal covenant love for the people whom he has saved and forgiven, he's still also doing the 7b thing too. Because he actually isn't allowing iniquity to go unpunished. And he isn't clearing the guilty just by a sort of wave of the hand. It's okay, no problem. It's actually, it's actually much more substantial than that. Because if you're forgiven by God, you're forgiven by God in Christ. And, 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 and he, God hasn't violated his justice. He hasn't said, I'm going to be nice to you, but you're going to have to pay for your sins. Actually, it's, the, sin, the sins are paid for for those who are, for those who are in Christ. Because the Lord has laid on him, it says, the iniquity of us all. So, so you start to realize why Isaiah 53 is so significant. It answers the question about how Israel gets out of exile. It answers the question of you know the Messiah and, and who he is, and why is there suffering and glory, and how do those two things fit together? Then it answers the big question, the question that should be, you know, you're a creature, I'm a creature. This should be like, you know, we should like, wait, this is the question, the question of human existence, which is how how can creatures be reconciled with a holy creator? I mean, first of all, there's just a creator-creature distinction, but then it's compounded by sin and rebellion. So how does that, like, how can that ever, ever, ever be solved? and and Isaiah 53 lays it out in in that in that little explanation section it, it, he he was bearing our iniquity he um he was crushed for our iniquity he was pierced for our transgressions the ch- uh, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace so we're now reconciled uh and the lord has laid it uses iniquity again the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, um, you know, you can't you can't overemphasize that. Now, yeah, go it ahead. It's the ultimate sacrifice. Ultimate. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's almost like a different category. It is the ultimate. You know, you could look at it that way. It's, it's the top of the list. It is the top of the list. But it, but it's it's just almost categorically different. Yes, but for sure, ultimate sacrifice. And, and you know, so, so then this is, uh, we don't even have time to look at all the New Testament references because this is alluded to so many times. But I will just say this. There's this wonderful um, there's this wonderful little text. We'll end with this because I know we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're losing choir members soon. Okay. Let me just read it to you. Um, it, it, you you remember, remember in Acts 8? When, when Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch, what a, what a, great, what a great thing. So that he's reading the prophet Isaiah. And um, he had come to Jerusalem to worship God. He was a God-fearing man, it says in the text. And um, so Isaac, or Philip comes and says to this man, you're reading Isaiah. You just left worshiping in Jerusalem. Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I? Unless someone guides me. And the passage of scripture, it says, that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. He's reading the Septuagint of uh, of Isaiah 53. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself? About someone else? And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And then the Ethiopian eunuch just immediately, yeah, that's it. That that answers all, that's the key that unlocks this whole text. And um, so it's just a wonderful example of, of the Lord using his word and this particular word to kind of answer all this man's questions about his relationship to his creator and, and the way of salvation. So... You know, Andy and I didn't plan to end on this right before Christmas. At least I didn't. Maybe you, you no. paced yourself so that it would all kind of come together. <laughs> yeah, but 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 it could hardly be it could hardly be better um, as a as a passage to lead us into this season. So let's pray, Lord, for your goodness and grace. We give you thanks. What amazing grace it is. We we can hardly even wrap our heads around it. Uh, The the distance between us and you is so great because of our sins; it's unbridgeable, and our iniquity has corrupted us on the inside and 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 left us liable to judgment. Uh, And thank you for the gift of your Son. Uh, Thank you for the reconciliation that He provides. Thank you for His substitutionary atonement for His appeasement of your wrath for His reconciliation between. Us and you. So, Father, cause us to rejoice in these things, to focus our minds on Christ, particularly in this next hour of worship. We come to you in His name and we thank you in His name.